0: Hello, and welcome back to Designing for Movement, the UX for Mobility podcast. I'm Dr. Julian Brinkley, your host. In today's world, the way people get around is changing rapidly. From the emergence of ride-sharing and electric vehicles to autonomous vehicles and spacecraft, new technologies are fundamentally changing the way we move around our cities and beyond. I believe to understand existing mobility technologies, as well as to imagine what comes next, we must think beyond our understanding of mobility as purely getting from point A to point B, and must instead think about the experience of mobility itself. In this podcast, we will explore the design of mobility technologies with an emphasis on understanding how best to support the human user. We'll be talking to designers, researchers, engineers, and experts in the field about how they design compelling, accessible, and engaging experiences at some of the world's leading mobility companies. So whether you're an industry professional, an educator, or just someone with a passion for mobility, design, UX, and technology, this podcast is for you. Let's get into it. Welcome to the first ever episode of Designing for Movement, the UX for Mobility podcast. Joining us today is Sarah Hedrich, an automotive experience researcher at SiriusXM. Sarah is a master's educated researcher with a passion for human automation interaction who authored a report looking into in-car touchscreens and whether they were distracting or whether they were more distracting than analog systems. So we're really delighted to have Sarah with us today as we explore some really interesting topics related to mobility on the Designing for Movement podcast. So first off, Sarah, thank you greatly for joining us on our first ever episode. Really appreciate it. How are you doing today?
1: Doing all right today. Happy Friday. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. Mm
0: -hmm. So let's jump right into it. So you've been an automotive experience researcher at SiriusXM since 2021. I looked at your website and uh, some of the materials that you have listed there, and it looks like you've been doing some really interesting work. Can you talk a little bit about your role at SiriusXM and some of the stuff you work on specifically?
1: Sure, absolutely. So I'm a researcher within the automotive division. I'm responsible for conducting research on SiriusXM's automotive instantiations As I'm sure some of you listeners may know, SiriusXM is embedded in almost every automaker. I think there are a few small ones where you won't find it, but almost every automaker just embeds SiriusXM within their cars. And my job is to make sure we have like our reference product where the designers create like what they want to put forth as the, I guess, best in class The example of how to basically take all the features, all the offerings SiriusXM has and present as ideally as possible how this should be in the vehicle. And of course, every OEM wants to integrate this into their own ecosystem, make it smooth, make it match their native environment. So my job is to conduct research to help inform how this is all done. That
0: sounds really interesting. I love my job. (laughs) Yeah, I can tell just in the way you speak about it. So some of the things that we were talking about before we started, you know, just to kind of inform the listeners of some of the things that um, we wanted to discuss were some of the work that you've been doing around in-car touchscreens. So can you talk a little bit about some of that work and what you've been doing with respect to that?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I was hired to run research in distracted driving. Almost all the work I do at the moment, it concerns an in-car touch screen. Our reference client is uh, based on a, purely a touch screen because we can't assume what buttons and what physical inputs they have within the car. We are working to make this adaptable to different sizes, different dimensions, but I I can't speak to that too much at this point. So I would say basically everything I do surrounds in-card touchscreens. I first got interested in this back in grad school, actually, honestly, from my very first class, but it really came to a head during my capstone where I basically kind of jerry-rigged together this uh, research project on how controlling music via touchscreen versus controlling music via analog buttons, how it affects uh, driver glance location.
0: Okay. Can you talk a little bit more about that project? What were some of the assumptions that you maybe went into that project with and how did that match up or compare to what you ultimately ended up uh, learning? That sounds like a really interesting topic to explore.
1: Absolutely. So I would say I didn't have initial assumptions so much as initial worries, I guess, would be more accurate to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my initial worry, of course, was that touchscreens were horribly distracting. It was very unfortunate that I was conducting this research just as the COVID-19 pandemic first hit. RIT campus shut down and unfortunately I had to discontinue my data collection after only 12 participants, despite having a target of 30 So unfortunately, my results weren't significant, but over the years, especially since working at SiriusXM, I've encountered a lot of information that's kind of challenged those initial worries. And I would say the biggest thing that challenged it was the fact that, I guess, modern vehicles have so much built into them. There are so many different functions and features that the modern driver has not only become accustomed to, but also depends upon to make their driving experience uh, comfortable and fluid and unfortunately, when you have analog buttons, that's a one to one relationship. You press one button, it does one thing for the most part. Touch screens are one to many relationships or one to reasonably many. There are limitations. And of course, it's just objective fact, basically, that you have to look at a touch screen to interact with it. There is no physical feedback. Sometimes haptics can be a physical feedback, but that's kind of a tricky tightrope to walk. So I guess the main thing that's kind of challenged my initial, not assumptions so much as worries, is the fact that there are certain things that touchscreens do perform better. Than physical buttons. But that's, once again, something that you have to explore in each individual scenario.
0: And that's very interesting, by the way. A lot of my work basically looks at trying to understand how persons with disabilities and older adults might best interact with uh, automotive systems. So (laughs) a lot of that work has been focused on autonomous systems specifically. But we've started to look more at conventionally driven vehicles, vehicles that are manually driven as well and Mm -hmm. how to support drivers with a variety of different needs. As we look at a lot of the data, uh, it suggests that drivers are, in many respects, getting older with the aging of the uh, population. Mm -hmm. So there are some concerns about how we can best support those drivers, older drivers, specifically those 65 and above, as they attempt to interact with and use conventionally driven vehicles. So my question around that really is, there seems to be a movement towards the digital interface and towards the touchscreen in many production vehicles, much more so than what we have seen in previous years. What would you directly attribute that to? Is that more of a, a market demand? So the market is basically leading us into a direction where we have this proliferation of Digital interfaces and touchscreens in a variety of different vehicles is it more so an economic perspective? I've heard from some OEMs that it's basically cheaper to put a uh, touchscreen mm. or some sort of digital interface into a vehicle versus you know making all of these little buttons and knobs and these other means of basically interacting with the vehicle. What would you attribute this movement towards the touchscreen and this touchscreen-centric environment to most directly in your estimation?
1: I think it's multifaceted. They are definitely cheaper to mass-produce, so there's a financial incentive there. Create once, implement many times, as opposed to the more complex, I guess, underpinnings of physical buttons and physical inputs. Modernness is also, just in general something that is trending. Our day-to-day lives are characterized by touchscreens. Fewer and fewer people have actual like desktop computers. I have one because I'm a big nerd, but fewer and fewer <laughs> people <laughs> yeah, are relying on these. I don't want to call them antiquated, especially because they are also coming along, but the conveniences of modern technology, of touchscreens, of just these, I guess, smart technologies just becoming more and more ubiquitous, it makes sense that they would appear in the car. The cars that have them integrated are also, you mentioned a uh, marketing incentive. They're more likely to be appealing to the modern buyer. I mean, between the financial incentive and the marketing incentive, those are two absolute huge drivers of this trend towards more touchscreens and more, I guess, sophisticated technology in vehicles in general.
0: Interesting. Can you talk about, obviously, there are a lot of different aspects of the in-vehicle experience that I would imagine that you all are actually exploring in your work at SiriusXM. Mm -hmm. So can you give an example of a recent study or maybe a not so recent study for something you can talk about that you all have done that has involved, you know, looking at, you know, some research questions around touchscreens, driver distraction or anything of that nature?
1: I would say the most uh, recent study, I don't know if there are any I can talk to per se. We did a little um, benchmarking of all our different OEM systems. And when we did, it was actually about a year ago, was one in the Ram pickup truck. And this was, I don't know if I've ever seen a screen this big in a car outside of like a Tesla or a car this big. This was a really interesting study to have participants, none of whom uh, drive this kind of vehicle and just comment. It wasn't particularly on the distractive capabilities of the system, but it was more of a usability evaluation of the system within the Dodge Ram. But a number of drivers commented on, and. I wish I could remember more clearly just every time we had them perform a task and we had them think to themselves, if any red flags popped up in their head related to, I don't know if I could see myself using this while driving. Of course, it's a really complex system. And so some features are more easy to access than others. And that's with almost every system. And so every time there's a feature that's not easy to access, you always hear people talk about, I don't know if I'd be comfortable using this while driving necessarily. And so that means we put that feature on a list to later examine in a distracted driving capacity. Mm -hmm.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So speaking about that, that sounds like really interesting work. We do a lot Mm -hmm. of usability related studies in my lab here. So I always find that type of work to be really uh, interesting because I find that you can learn a lot about what not to do in the worst case scenario <laughs> by doing those types of uh, studies. So for this study, that uh, the usability study you did, where do you all typically recruit participants from? Do you have some internal mechanism that you use for that? Do you go out broadly to the general public to recruit? Where do you recruit participants from? And maybe what are some of the best practices that you employ to basically support that activity?
1: Recruitment is definitely something that's changing within our team, especially as we gain access to new vendors. We're actually in this with a new vendor at the moment, and I don't know how much I can speak to that. But I would say even more important than what means you do to recruit is how precisely you target your sample. So we always make sure that we have we templatize how we target our samples. And we have kind of our standard. We want half uh, SiriusXM users, half non-users. That's because in the past, we used to target exclusively users, and that just gave us a biased sample. We're interested in how everyone sees our system were and how People who aren't familiar interpret our system. We want an age range and we specifically examine the age break above and below 45. We want a balance of genders. It's depending on the study and it really depends. We want people who drive a vehicle five years or newer, just so they're familiar with using modern technology in a vehicle, ideally a touchscreen, though not necessarily some OEMs do something different. And especially because in-person studies, recruiting for in-person research is so much more sensitive in terms of time and in terms of finances, we want the um, recruitment agency to be able to speak to them and have them articulate just some basic answers to questions. Like we sometimes, since we're a media company, we'll ask them, oh, what's your favorite genre of music and see if they can articulate something instead of saying like, oh, I like everything. Someone who says, Oh, I like everything isn't necessarily going to be a participant who gives you useful information when you ask them questions. So, yeah, I I don't know if that answered your question precisely, but yeah, I would say definitely who you're targeting as your participants is a lot more important than what agency you're going through or what means you're using to recruit.
0: So it sounds like often you all use maybe third parties to assist you in the recruiting Mm -hmm. process. So you use. You know, others to basically with that, which I think makes sense, especially given the type of work that you all are uh, doing. So following up on that, a lot of what we do involves working with people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. So one of the big areas that we're working in right now is trying to understand what will the in-vehicle experience look like when we move towards more automated vehicles, So as we move up the uh, levels of uh, vehicular automation from level three to maybe level five. So when we go from, you know, partially automated vehicles to vehicles that are basically fully automated and are capable. Of For the most part, full self-driving. What does that Mm in-vehicle experience look like? Are you all doing anything that you can speak to around thinking about, you know, this reimagined autonomous vehicle and what that in-vehicle experience might look like with Sirius XM or maybe other technologies that might be in the vehicle as well?
1: I can't speak to any work we're doing at the moment outside of just keeping on top of industry trends and keeping on top of where the technology is moving, coming up with ideas for when the time comes, how we might see our own product integrated into these vehicles. And already we're considering how the product would work in something like, I've already seen like videos of automated taxis that take people from A to B, and that's already a thing that exists. And so the idea that this system that's so baked into the car in general? How can it be baked into these cars that are so fundamentally different from how we use cars today?
0: Yes, that makes sense. I think there's some of the work we're doing basically looks at, you know, entertainment within the vehicle. So what does that look like Mm -hmm. in entertainment? You know, broadly, we've started to explore things like augmented and virtual reality in autonomous vehicles. So how do we reimagine, you know, fundamentally what people are able to do in the vehicle, where they no longer have to drive manually or pay attention to the roadway. So we've Mm -hmm. started to look at some of that. So I would imagine, Obviously, you can't speak to it, but I can imagine the amount of work that you all are currently putting into exploring some of those topics with respect to some of the work that you're doing. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk a little bit more about some of the fundamental tenets of uh, good UX design. Obviously, given your background, you have a lot of exposure to these types of topics. What are some of the principles that you try to bring to bear with respect to good UX design and, you know, designing things that are accessible for all and things like that in some of the work that you're doing?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I'm a little rusty on my design fundamentals in terms of naming them. No worries. Aren't we all? (laughs) Aren't we all? I don't know if this is a fundamental per se, but when you design for the car, it kind of flips design on its head because it's the only environment where you're designing the secondary process if that makes sense. And that's something I like to remind the designers I work with and even the product folks I work with of all the time. Like, why is my particular job important? Why do we not just have one overarching user experience team covering both digital and automotive instantiations? Because it is so fundamentally different. Everything is so much more sensitive in the vehicle purely because this is a giant metal moving box. (laughs) Near other giant metal moving boxes. And so I would say everything involving attention becomes substantially more important. The idea, information architecture in particular, where things are placed within the navigation paradigm becomes so much more important. Not that it's fun to go through an app on your phone and dig through five screens to find something essential. In a car, that can be the difference between like half a second of time being distracted and four seconds of time being distracted, which doesn't sound like much. But when you think about it, looking away from the road for four seconds is a lot. Mm -hmm. So I would say definitely information architecture is a huge part of good information architecture. Making sure the user the driver the listener knows exactly where to find things use of good iconography hidden interfaces are a no-go especially in the car good use of signifiers in the car but mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. that involves attention just becomes so much more important is like guess how we'll sum it up
0: no, I think that makes perfect sense. The way I like to typically frame some of the challenges for designing for the in-vehicle experience—I'm talking to students, or you know, I'm working with stakeholders, or et cetera—is that you're essentially trying to design a system in an environment where really it's cognitively demanding to some degree. The driving activity; things can appear in any part of the visual field, really, at any given time. And it really heavily requires the visual senses and cognitive abilities to a certain degree to basically be able to drive effectively. But I think when we think about that, it raises questions about what some of the primary challenges are with respect to current in-car interfaces and in-vehicle systems. Are there some significant problems that you have observed with in-car interfaces just currently? Not necessarily with anything that you all are directly working on, but just... Mm -hmm. Broadly, you know, some challenges with in car interfaces in the vehicle.
1: Yes, anecdotally, I can't say I have too much experience. My car is 13 years old, <laughs> and I haven't really gotten to sit behind the wheel of too many modern cars. But I have a lot of coworkers in this automotive department too, and I see articles fly by all the time about new innovations in the automotive space. The challenges it kind of comes back to this, why do we see so many touchscreens in cars? And I guess it's this this rush toward modernness. Sometimes, and not always, but sometimes, at least in my opinion, unfortunately, there's not really financial incentive to slow down this process for safety. Where, again, it comes back to this financial incentive and this marketing incentive and We're now seeing automakers build functions like windshield wipers and sometimes even shifting into their screens. It's a little concerning to see how rushed this race toward the most modern vehicle is. And don't get me wrong. They're gorgeous, like absolutely gorgeous. I see the things my coworkers are asked to work on. It's like, not only are they incredibly talented designers and this is literally their job to do this, but it's also like, I see this and I'm concerned that. You know how there's formative and summative research? We've rushed past the formative research in a lot of these things to the point that we need something. We need, we need something to put in the car, to advertise, to sell, and then we can figure out if it works or doesn't. And if we find out it doesn't work, maybe there's still enough incentive to keep it in there. It's a tricky question to navigate, and I don't want to necessarily lambast the inclusion of some of these features, again, because this is my opinion. I don't have data in front of me. I can't speak to facts here. Just objectively, there's little financial incentive to run this kind of formative research before they're done. Yeah.
0: And that's a, that was a great response. I think to follow up on that, one of the questions I have is, We see a lot of laws that are currently in place and laws that are being proposed and being put in place to basically limit the ability or at least to discourage people from using their Mm -hmm. smartphones to text or, you know, to do whatever they may do in the vehicle while actively driving, right? Mm -hmm. I know that early on when in-vehicle touchscreen type systems were introduced, there were efforts to really discourage people from doing things like watching movies in the vehicle while the vehicle was moving or doing things of that nature, you know, watching TV, Mm -hmm. you know, or things like that while driving. I think one argument could be made that maybe the guidance and the legislation on How we need to basically design these things, what their capabilities should be, Mm -hmm. what should be accessible to the driver while they are actively driving may not necessarily be at the same pace as where it needs to be. Do you think that this is something where perhaps we need additional guidance, either from regulatory agencies that basically suggest What the capabilities or limitations should be of this technology are additional laws needed or is this just something that, you know, OEMs and just the broader automotive UX community needs to kind of coalesce around an understanding of what is appropriate and what should be done and should be accessible in the vehicle.
1: I mean, honestly, (laughs) that both and all three (laughs) to answer your question in a nutshell. Honestly, I've been asking myself for the past six years, why are we not allowed to use our touchscreen phones in the car when we're allowed to use the touchscreens built into the car? It's a great question. And while there are standards and there are standards, we have to run our research against the um NHTSA driver distraction guidelines. Mm-hmm. Off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure it's like less than 12 seconds total, less than two seconds average per glance. There are guidelines, but that's more of a liability type thing. It's more so if a feature passes these guidelines and someone uses it, the person who creates it can say, this feature passes NHTSA guidelines and the driver is at fault because we built the feature to these guidelines. I definitely think more responsibility should be put on the broader UX community, especially the UX community in the automotive field. I don't think there are many of us. (laughs) But I do think it's worth just taking the responsibility, kind of taking the chance to take a stand. I mean, it's one of the reasons I came here on your podcast, because I'm really passionate about this topic. I am actually a car accident survivor, which is why this interested me in the first place. And it's just the idea that you're driving a car, it's a huge responsibility, even without a touchscreen, just to operate brake gas steering wheel. And add 500 things on top of that that you can do it's adding extra responsibility giving the driver extra responsibility and i think on top of giving the driver that responsibility it's the responsibility of the people who make the things that we give to the driver in addition regulatory bodies can only do so much You can implement standards like the NHTSA did. I know there are certain systems where like you're locked out of using certain features if you're over 10 miles per hour, but at the moment that's to my knowledge, more of just a subjective call or a call based on whoever makes the system. I'm not positive on that. There might be some standards in place about that, but it's hard. They're all so different. There's so much out there. And so Regulating what should or shouldn't be available to the driver, there's so much variation. How do you regulate it all? I think Mm -hmm. the onus is on the people who make these systems more so than Mm -hmm. regulatory and legal bodies. And again, that's hard to do because (laughs) a lot of these companies are in competition with each other. And so there's a lot at play at the corporate level, at the legal level. I wouldn't say as much at the interpersonal level. But there is also at just the system level, at the level of what's actually in the car and what the driver is actually using. So there are a lot of moving pieces, but I do think the onus is on the people who make these systems. That makes sense.
0: I want to specifically talk about, one, the interpersonal and also the broader automotive UX community. I am a faculty member here at Clemson University, where my lab is located, is located on an automotive engineering campus, but I'm actually a computing faculty member. So Mm -hmm. I often get asked by students, how do they basically get into this field? So we have some computing students who are interested. We have human-centered computing students who are interested in more UX and user experience and UI type work. We also have uh, automotive engineering students who come at similar problems, but just from a different direction, still taking that type of coursework. So what was your path to basically get where you are?
1: I mean, I actually initially started my undergrad in IT and computing. I worked for a few years at Kodak in the University of Rochester between undergrad and grad school. I was a software test engineer, so QA engineer at Kodak. And then I kind of did like web and computing, everything for the student activities office at the University of Rochester. And I realized I care way more about people than I do about computers. Like, Don't get me wrong. I'm a huge nerd. I love computers. I built my own. But I care way more about people. I fortunately had a minor in psychology from my undergrad, and I found myself just applying everything I had learned from this to what I was doing with computers, with my uh, web management, with my system administration, uh, just applying these principles I'd learned in psychology to uh, like creating new websites for the students at the University of Rochester. And I realized, oh, RIT just introduced a human computer interaction program. That kind of sounds up my alley because I'm looking for a change of career. I applied. I got in. I started and I kind of didn't know where I was going to go with this. All I knew was I like what I'm learning. During my first course, uh, research methods course, actually, with um, Professor Vicki Hansen, who has since uh, left RIT to become the CEO of the uh, Association for Computing Machinery, she was asking, like, hey, what are you guys passionate about? Because it helps to do projects on things you're passionate about. And I was just searching my brain for something, and it, something clicked. It occurred to me, like, what I said before, why... Are we not allowed to use our touchscreen phones in the car, but we are allowed to use the touchscreens built into our cars? Cars are big computers, human-computer interaction. There's a human in the car, the car is a computer, but how does that affect the way they drive? That's a really sensitive environment, and fortunately that was like my second week of grad school, and so that... Never left me that just carried me all the way through grad school. RIT didn't really have any like facilities or professors dedicated to this topic. So I kind of had to figure stuff out on my own and basically take any opportunity to conduct research and run projects around this topic. And I just did it again and again and again and again. (laughs) And so it just, it cultivated this passion in me. I would say there are universities to my knowledge that do specialize in Automotive HCI. I can't name them offhand, but I'm sure just searching for them will get you there. And unfortunately, I graduated in May 2020, so I struggled to find work for a year. And my first job I was hired to didn't actually involve any automotive UX, but I was actually found by a recruiter looking to fill a role at Sirius XM in the automotive research department. They found me. I spoke to the research director at the time, he's since left and I have a, a new manager, but <laughs> it was very clearly a very good fit. So that's kind of been my personal career journey. If this is an interest to someone, there are much more targeted ways to get there. There are definitely, I I didn't take any kind of undergrad program and anything related to HCI. Like I had a few HCI courses, but I mean, RIT, for example, now offers a human-centered computing major for undergrad students. And that probably will get you there a lot faster than I got there with my IT degree, a few years of work, master's degree. And I mean, outside of that, my coworkers come from, and just people in the UX community come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Some people in computing, some people in psychology or social sciences. Some designers come from graphic design or industrial design. It's a multidisciplinary field. There are many roads to get to where you want to get.
0: That's wonderful. I really appreciate you sharing that because I get that question quite often. That's mm-hmm. one that uh, I routinely get from students. What advice would you give to people basically starting off their careers in automotive UX? You know, so you have gone to RIT or some other university, you've studied this topic, and you were able to land your first job, right? Mm-hmm. Not you necessarily, but a, a person was able to land their first job. You know, they're in there and they're trying to be successful, Do you have any advice that you think would help them in this domain uh, be successful, at least initially?
1: I guess I'll come back to the idea that you have to kind of flip UX principles on their head for the automotive environment and understand that the normal approach only works to a degree here, as well as just the career advice that could work for anyone searching any career network. Find people who are already in this field. Ask them what it's like. How do they get there? My understanding is, say you want to do this for an automaker odds are you'll be doing one thing or one type of thing again and again and again. In my role at SiriusXM, we're not an automaker. We just have a product that is in vehicles. And so in my role, I do a lot of different things, which I personally find interesting. But even within this very small niche of a new field, you're going to find a lot of variation. And so to understand... What it is you're passionate about, about automotive, like a person who's interested in automotive research may not be very interested in automotive safety research. The rest of my team, like they understand why it's important, but they don't really have the drive for automotive safety that I have, which is fine. They're all in this field. They all contribute. And it's a multifaceted environment. Uh So I'll try to summarize that (laughs) to understand that you're going to have to flip a lot of UX principles on their heads to network with people in the field that you're interested in. And to understand that there are different paths you can go, like, even if you've taken one of many paths to get here, there are still, from this point, many different paths you can take through this field.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So speaking a little bit more about the whole networking aspect, Mm -hmm. automotive UX or or just thinking about mobility broadly, even that broad lens, it seems like a really small community, relatively speaking right? just mm-hmm. a broader kind of UX community. So is there anyone within that community that you would really be interested in speaking to? You would love to take a lunch or you would love to just, you know, learn more about what they do or even a role maybe that might be someone you'd be interested in talking to?
1: Dr. David Strayer. I followed his uh, research pretty closely while I was in grad school. It's been a while since I've looked at what he's done, but he's done some really cool stuff on automotive research. On his page on APA.org, he noticed the same distractions pilots were dealing with in the air were affecting drivers on the road. His curiosity was piqued. He's, to my knowledge, a uh, leader in distracted driving research. So if I had an opportunity to just talk to him and ask him about not only like what sparked his passion, but a lot of interesting things he's found out, how that has gone to inform the design and implementation of systems in cars, that'd be really cool.
0: Yeah, well, hopefully he'll listen and hear this and we'll reach out to you and you all can- Oh, that'd be cool. <laughs> yeah, you never know. It's a small world out there, so you never know.
1: Never know. You never
0: know. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to have an opportunity to talk with you.
1: Thank you so much. I think,
0: I think what you shared would be really helpful to anyone working in or outside of the field. I think that would be really helpful. I think also students will potentially be really interested in hearing what you had to say about getting into the field and how to progress and how to network and things of that nature. Is there anything you wanted to say before we conclude?
1: I guess just, you don't have to love this field to be in it, but it does help if you love it. Of course, there are easier days and harder days, but it's such a wonderful, interesting field. My current manager actually pivoted to this field from marketing and prior to that from uh, just media and she finds it super interesting. And so it's almost like reinvigorating to some people because of all the challenges and the uniqueness of the environment. So I don't know, you don't have to love it, but it's helpful if you do, and it's rewarding even if you don't.
0: Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate you being our very first guest. So (laughs) cheers to you for doing that. So I'll do a little applause. And uh, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Brinkley. Thank you for having me.
0: That's all for today's episode for the UX for Mobility podcast. Remember to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes and feel free to leave us a review to let us know what you think. And a special thanks to our guests for sharing their expertise with us and to our listeners for tuning in. Join me again next time for more exciting discussions on Designing for Movement, the UX for Mobility
1: podcast.